0: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Gaines. Welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. And I'm looking forward to speaking to you shortly.
1: Welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life to get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story.
0: Here's your host, Tim Banfield.
1: Hey everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Euros Hartleys Finding the Front. It's been a busy couple of weeks for Euros Hartleys. We hosted our 23rd annual Rottnest Island Institutional Conference, which was a tremendous success and once again very insightful. And overall, very well received by the large number of institutional clients who attended, most who travelled to Rottnest from the East Coast. And then, on the weekend, we were the premier partner and major sponsor of the 2023 Port to Pub Rottnest Channel Swim, which was a huge day out for some 1,200 competitors and their support teams. Well done to all who were involved, including a shout out to many of our staff who made the 20 kilometre crossing. The weather was behind us and the easterly was certainly appreciated. Well, as you heard at the beginning, it is pretty exciting and really great to have you on board for what is a seriously super opportunity to sit down for a chat with one of Western Australia's and Australia's leading corporate and business leaders, the former CEO of Fortescue Metals Group, Elizabeth Gaines. To give you an idea of Elizabeth's career recognition, for those of you who aren't aware, she ranked second in the 2019 Fortune Magazine's Business Person of the Year. In 2020, the Chamber of Minerals and Energy of Western Australia awarded her the Women in Resources Champion at the annual Women in Resources Awards. And also in 2020, she was awarded Joint Australian Business Person of the Year the Australian Financial Review. This podcast provides our listeners with a superb opportunity to hear about Elizabeth's background and where she grew up in far northern and country WA, her close family environment, through to a diversified international corporate career and experiences she has gained over many years at the top that delivers some amazing insights and captivating listening. There are so many takeaways and perspectives from Elizabeth in this conversation. So without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the wonderful Miss Elizabeth Gaines. (laughs) Elizabeth, thanks so much for taking the time out to join us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It's so good to have you here. It's really just absolutely awesome.
0: Well, it's great to be here, Tim, and to spend a bit of time with you.
1: Good on you. So to kick off, and the listeners will be familiar with this, I just want to put a little bit of context around your career so that when we dig a bit deeper and we put a bit of insight into your life and your background and and what you've achieved, that everyone can follow. And there's a lot to get through, but I've tried to abbreviate it a little bit, so just bear with me. So for the listeners, those of you that aren't familiar with Elizabeth Gaines, here's a brief overview of her well-documented and high-achieving career. Elizabeth is a seriously experienced corporate and business leader, with extensive international and diverse experience as a Chief Executive Officer. She led Australia's third largest iron ore miner, Fortescue Metals Group, as a CEO and Executive Director from February 2018. After joining the Executive Team as a CFO in February 2017, she served on the Fortescue Board as a non-executive director since 2013. In August 22, she stepped down from her role as CEO of Fortescue, however, has maintained her position on the Fortescue board as a non-executive director and is also Fortescue's global green hydrogen ambassador. A very exciting role, as we'll find out later. Elizabeth is a former CEO of Hello World and the well-known WA business Hatesbury, a former commissioner of Tourism WA and has previously held non-executive director roles with Nine Entertainment, Next DC, Mantra Group and Impedimed. She has certainly received recognition of her decorated career along the way. Elizabeth ranked second in the 2019 Fortune Magazine's Businessperson of the Year, and in 2020, the Chamber of Minerals and Energy of Western Australia awarded her the Women in Resources Champion at the annual Women in Resources Awards. In 2020, she was also awarded Joint Australian Businessperson of the Year by the Australian Financial Review. Currently, in addition to her non-executive roles and the Global Green Hydrogen Ambassador for Fortescue, amongst other roles, Elizabeth is non-executive director of the West Coast Eagles Football Club, a member of the Curtin University Business and Law School Advisory Committee and a member of Rugby Australia's Bid Advisory Committee for the 2027 Rugby World Cup bid, which they won. Wow, pretty amazing, Elizabeth. One of the key things with our podcast, Finding the Front, is that Whilst you've achieved these amazing things, what the listeners really want to find out to start with is just a bit about your background and what shaped you and the people that influenced you and your mentors to lead to what is this outstanding career and clear leadership quality. So looking into it, my research would indicate you were born in the far northwest town of WA called Derby.
0: That's right. I'm a kid from the bush, from the Kimberley. I'm very <laughs> proud of it. I love the Kimberley. My parents were living in Halls Creek at the time. So mum had to fly on Flying Doctor to Derby to have me. So there was no facilities at Halls Creek. So this was back in the sort of mid-60s. So it was a really interesting place to be born. We actually didn't stay there that long. We moved back to Perth, but then dad was posted to Derby and I went to, to school in Derby as well. So the Kimberley is a place that I really do love. And I think when I joined Fortescue the Pilbara as well. I mean, it really gets to you, that beautiful scenery, the landscape, the richness of the Pilbara and the northwest of Western Australia. It's a fantastic place to have spent some of my childhood. Wow.
1: So you were brought up with, you were the third of four children and mum and dad. Yes. So big family, family yep. of six, busy times.
0: Always busy. Um, and they, it was always about, you know, us. the kids had to be active. We had to be outside. Mum and dad had table tennis tables, dartboards, swimming pool, pool table, you know, just things that you had to have to keep lots of kids active. Yeah. And of course, when we went to high school, we went to Perth Modern School, which was pretty demanding on your time as well. That was six days a week. So we were always busy. There was always things happening. And we moved around regional Western Australia. I went to a number of primary schools and it was a really active time.
1: Tell me a little bit about your mum and dad. I know that they had a really strong influence on your life. So my take on is your mum was Pat from Bunbury.
0: Yes. And
1: Brian, uh, who was from Boynup, which is not too far away. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what they did. I, I mean, your dad was a headmaster.
0: Yes. Yeah, so so dad was from Boynup, born in Donnybrook, very keen athlete. He played in the Southwest League for Donnybrook-Boynup. Uh, when that joined the Southwest League, he played cricket. It, he was always very active head boy at Bunbury High School. Right. And he said at the time that he he was the youngest of seven children and he always wanted – there was a school that he used to pass on the bus on the way to high school. And he said, one day I want to be the headmaster of a little country school like that. So it was something that he, at a, at a young age, decided he wanted to do. He then went to Claremont Teachers College and later to UWA. And – He was the youngest ever headmaster, I think, appointed at the age of 27 to Halls Creek, took mum and, at the time, two children, and I was born while they were there, off to Halls Creek And for mum coming from Bunbury. Yes. That was a huge move. And dad later went on after a number of years in regional centres. He he ended up running and modernising what was the School of the Air to become distance education. So dad was director of distance education and spent a lot of time working on the importance of education for regional children and work with UNESCO in Africa and other places and attended conferences, really focused on that strength of regional education. And, and with Mum, she was a really talented musician. She was a very good pianist. and But she left school, as women did in those days. She had four children, fairly young. Yes. And she actually went to university after. She had four of us. So she's a really good role model in the context of... Um, the importance of education and mum decided later on in her 30s to go to university and get a degree.
1: I was reading actually about that and there was a fantastic article written by Sean Smith in The Western Australian back in 2017 interviewing yourself, your sister Jo and your sister Alison and it was called Capital Gains <laughs> And one of the and one of the quotes that you said that it was describing the influence of your mum that she had on all three sisters in terms of studying beyond your initial degrees. And that clearly has shone out in terms of what you have gone on to do. With your primary schooling, you went to five schools?
0: Yes, yes.
1: And then settled back in Perth. And then you were awarded a scholarship to Perth Mod, Perth well, Modern School.
0: I was the third of the family to get a scholarship to Perth Modern. So, Alison got a scholarship to Perth Modern and then my brother Bruce and then I was absolutely <laughs> Under the sweating on it. You know, At 11 years of age, are you going to get accepted into Perth Modern? It became a really big thing and of course my younger sister Jo, it was even a bigger, bigger deal for her. I think we're one of only two families of all four siblings who had music scholarships. To so Perth Jo Modern was School. really sweating. She was really sweating, <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Gosh. <laughs> and, and and the music talent t- did tend to dilute through the family, dare I say it. So Alison <laughs> <laughs> was, was very musically talented and, uh, and then Bruce. And, anyway, so we went to, to Perth Modern School, which a fantastic school. And obviously Perth Mod has an amazing reputation. And today is young people going through Perth Modern School and the achievements they have are just incredible was a great school, but it was a pretty disciplined and tough environment because we actually lived in the hills, and very few people who were in the music program lived around the corner in Mount Hawthorne or Subiaco yes. or Shenton Park. So we were commuting long distances, and you had to go to school six days a week because orchestra and band were on Saturdays. So it was a couple of hours each way to get to school. Plus we had choir, we had Saturday school. It was So it was a very disciplined environment and I think that did instil in all of us actually Yes. our work ethic and there's not one of us that don't work hard and have that discipline, I think, as I said, from that time when we were at Perth Modern School in particular.
1: Where did the, this love of music come from? So did you grow up with your mum playing yes. and your dad playing and it just sort of washed over you all the time and you got into it and the power of music has clearly had a, an influence on your life.
0: It has. I love music and I you know, people often talk about what's one of man's greatest inventions. And for me, I always come back to music. And you think about the complexity of some of the music that was written centuries ago. It's quite incredible. I just, I just find music. And people often say, well, you did music. How did you end up going down the commerce more sort of, I Absolutely. guess, enumerate path? But I've always said that there's quite a lot of commonality between music and numbers. And if you think about a musical chord, first, third and fifth, that's a bit like a musical formula. So I've always seen that there's quite a lot of, there's some linkages between music and people who have that strong sense of numeracy, I guess. But music's been really important. Mum, as I mentioned earlier, she was a fantastic pianist. I mean, she did a lot of the exams for the Royal College of London. And when we were living in Derby and other places in regional Western Australia, if there wasn't a school choir, even though at the time my mum wasn't a qualified teacher, she would actually get the school choir going. And I vividly remember at Derby just getting this mixture of kids like from, you know, all over the Kimberleys and these kids belting out these songs and mum, you know, being the uh, leading the choir. So, yeah, you know, the power of music and I think what it can where it can transport you and it brings people together, you know, sport and music. I mean, I guess they're two of my sort of great loves and passions.
1: Fantastic. Concentrating on music for two seconds. I know you've had this amazing scholarship opportunity through Perth Mod. What was your favourite instrument?
0: Well, I played the French horn. Okay. So for your listeners, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily my first choice of <laughs> instrument. So you go along as a 12-year-old and you do three days of exams in Subiaco Town Hall and there's about 300 of you. And there's 30 places at Perth Mod and there was 30 places at Churchlands. Then if you get through that, you're invited along to an interview and you're 12 and you go into this interview on your own. And I had put down as my first choice of instrument, because I did piano, and piano wasn't one of the instruments because you right. don't have piano in it. So I put, I think, I think I put flute and then saxophone, and they said, we have students who've applied who have been playing those instruments in primary school, so you'll be starting without any uh, experience. So choose another instrument. So I'm 12 years of age, and I'm thinking about this, and our next-door neighbour played in the WA Symphony Orchestra. And he played French horn.
1: By chance.
0: <laughs> By chance. So I said, oh, French horn, good idea. So <laughs> there I was as, uh, when I started school. And for the French horn players, and if anyone's familiar with some brass instruments, the only part of the instrument we got for the first sort of three to six months was the mouthpiece. Because unless you could play the mouthpiece part of the instrument, then you didn't get the whole instrument. So in our household, we had Alison was violin. My brother was tuba. Right. So another big instrument. I played French horn and my sister Jo played trombone. So practice time was quite interesting.
1: Gosh, your mum and dad must have been patient. <laughs> well, our neighbours were pretty patient Me too. They were patient too.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so with that background of music, we often ask on Finding the Front, how did you know what you wanted to do when you were leaving school? And, it, and when you're immersed in this culture and the discipline around it, you, you chose to take a different tack. And you went on to do a Bachelor of Commerce at Curtin. Now, could you just, because there's lots of listeners that have children that are going through that space or they're actually going through it, right? And they're looking at, well, what do I do and what causes me to take a chosen path? And how did it work out for you?
0: Well, I was really lucky. And I do think about this today with you know, young people who were trying to decide what course might they do or what career might they choose. And I was really lucky to have strong mentoring from my parents. And that was really important. And I think for all four of us, We ended up choosing career paths that were well suited to us and our personalities. We didn't all do the same thing. And for me, I'd always had a pretty strong bent towards, I guess, numbers, math, logic. I sort of liked that part of it. And I'm pretty sure at 13, I said, I want a job where I can work overseas. I made that decision very early on that I really wanted to be able to have something that I could take those skills and I could travel. And it was probably more my mother, actually, because she went to university, as I said, later in life. And she, she did a, a teaching degree, but specialising in business education. So she was actually at high schools, and she led the department for you know accounting studies, economics, and the like. So mum was a big influence in, in that regard, and really, I guess, mentored me along that path. And for me, that was absolutely the right choice. At one point, I thought, well, I'll go to uni, and I'll become a professional musician, but... Then I became much more aware of what that really means, yes. and you know, there aren't that many jobs. And unless you're the world's best French horn player, which I definitely wasn't, right? <laughs> that probably <laughs> wasn't the right career path for me. So, look, I, I feel really fortunate that I had that that mentoring, and it really played to my natural skills and strengths, as did my siblings. And so, as I said earlier, you know, I think about that with young people now, and of course, the number of courses that you can choose from has mm. just Amplified, there are so many different options, and getting that counselling and that that advice, I think, has become more challenging. And that's why career counsellors at schools are really important. Teachers, yes, I think I had some also some guidance from my teachers about what areas I would be better suited to. So there are big decisions, however, they don't have to be. As I've since seen, I didn't think I would end up doing what I've done when you so, started when you embarked. Yeah, on when commerce. you embarked on on commerce, I just knew that I wanted to have. A profession that I could yep. work overseas, that I could have an interesting career, and that I wouldn't necessarily be doing the same thing every single day. Although I have to say, my first day at Ernst and Young <laughs> after I graduated, I came home. Mum said, "Had it go." I said, "I think I made the wrong choice because I think I sat on a microfiche in the, <laughs> in the audit, uh, doing the auditing records of." Woodside or something for for the whole day. And I was thinking, well, that wasn't that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I persevered. That's why I studied.
1: <laughs> you went on and coming back to your mum and sort of the influence around study after your degree, you clearly brought the two together, work and study, mm. because you went on and did a, a Masters of Applied Finance at Macquarie Uni. Uh, you've done an honorary Doctorate of Commerce from Curtin. And now you're a fellow of the Chartered Accounts Australia and New Zealand and a member of the ARCD or Australian Institute of Company Directors. How has that evolved in terms of developing new, Knowing where you've ended up, mm. the importance of that extra study, was that pivotal, do you think?
0: I think it is. And I've often said this to younger people as if you were providing advice or mentoring is don't expect somebody else to take responsibility for your own career development. You should really take the initiative yourself. So when I, I so I went to London, and we'll probably talk about that a bit later yes. after I finished my chartered accounting. And I, I was fortunate that I ended up working in an, for an investment bank in London. And when I came back to Perth, I realised I wanted to do some further studies and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But I sort of thought, well, I've had this great experience. I should actually make sure that I invest in myself and that I do some further postgraduate studies. Fortunately, Macquarie were just expanding their Masters of Applied Finance program, and they were offering it not only in Sydney, but also in Perth and Brisbane and Melbourne. So I was at the right place at the right time, and it was a fantastic course. I must admit that uh, Masters in Applied Finance, it was tough at the time, because I was working full-time and doing my Masters, but it was a really good course, and I think it's been quite pivotal to my Later career choices and yes. and my ability to work in in other situations. So that that was really really key. And and so that's I guess one piece of advice I would give to those yeah you know who might be listening is you know if you feel as though you've got a little bit more in the tank in terms of wanting to continue to further your own education, uh, then there are lots of opportunities out there. And it's finding the right one that really does align with your skills and experience to date but also gives you those new skills and experience for the future
1: such a good insight and it'd be really really valued you went into using that sort of skill set you, as you mentioned earlier you went into Ernst & Young mm. and spent four years with Ernst & Young but then I could just sort of detect at some point you went right time to pack it in and go traveling and off you went to Europe so this next phase, you know, really starts to kick it off when you go to Europe and you end up in London. With regards to what you learnt from Ernst and Young, just if you put that into a little bit of foundation laying, was this really key because it taught you the basics of what you needed to know to go on in
0: life? Yeah, the time at Ernst and Young, particularly back then, you know, where you started as a young, you know, you recruited from university, joined Ernst and Young as a graduate. And most of us were put into the audit team or the audit department. Some went into tax and other areas. But the beauty of being in the audit team is one day you would be auditing Woodside and the next minute you'd be auditing the Shire of Marble Bar. So we went from big businesses to little businesses. We got to, You got to experience a lot of different industries through auditing. Yes. And I think that actually, because we'll talk later about my career and I have worked in a number of different industries, But the foundation that I received through those years working in audit were really important, I think, rather than going into one area, let's say banking and finance, and that's it. When I started Ernst & Young, we were actually exposed to lots of different industries and I think that really gave me the capacity to understand... Balance sheets and cash flows, and what makes a, a business work, but then looking at those different industries and understanding the, I guess, the areas that are particular to that industry,
1: and the story of the financial statements.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, what a, it what it
1: showed you and yeah. the story it could tell you out of it.
0: Yep. Balance sheets, cash flows, everything that you see, you actually get a sense for for a business. But you know, to quote Ted Turner, "Cash is king." Yes. So a cash flow statement tells you an awful lot about a business. Yes. And. Yeah, we'll talk later about sort of some of my later experiences, but the GFC really, I think, showed that very clearly and I, by then I had a lot more experience under my belt. But I do think that those early years at Ernst & Young were really important as a foundation. And I look at my peers who are in my group there and they've all gone on to have pretty interesting careers as well and I think we all got a fantastic grounding through that time at Ernst & Young. And I know young people today who have started at some of the big... Big four professional firms, and they're getting very similar uh, opportunities and experiences. It's a little bit different now because they do tend to be a bit more specialised. Yes. Whereas we were far more uh, generalists, but they do still get fantastic training and fantastic experience. And I often, you know, say to young commerce graduates, if you get that opportunity, you should really grasp it because the the chartered program, the training you get through those firms is is world class.
1: Yes. Yes. Very formative. So, Elizabeth, to continue on through this story, it's quite interesting that you ended up in Europe. And just for everyone, I know that when you leave school, you've got these desires to maybe take a gap year. You clearly chose to go into your career and then you went through and you ended up on a direct – was it a direct flight to Istanbul?
0: I wish it was direct. Um, <laughs> no. So, no, you're right though. My, my younger sister, she did the rotary exchange to the US. She yep. decided that's what she wanted to do. I was actually quite keen to get on to uni and yes. to actually get my degree under my belt, which I'm pleased I did. And then obviously chartered accounting came immediately after that. But I did get to that point where I realised – I didn't want to do auditing or these days it's assurance for the rest of my uh, professional uh, career. So and I had I, I think there probably would have been an opportunity to transfer to the UK with with Ernst and Young as a lot of my, my contemporaries did. But I made the decision no oh, I wanted to uh, to have a bit more of an experience. So one way ticket to Istanbul via Pakistan I think. Right. But it was an interesting flight. And I went with a friend and we arrived in Istanbul and uh, I spent sort of four months traveling through Europe and then arrived in London with probably £200 in my pocket, a chartered accounting qualification, thank goodness. And uh, and then I had to find myself a job.
1: And that's where it all started. So you end up with Kleinwork Benson, which is a merchant bank, British merchant bank?
0: Yes, now Dresdner right. Um So a UK uh, investment bank. I went along to Michael Page, like a lot of young accountants did at the time, to say, I'm here, I'd like a job, and there were a couple of opportunities. One of them was with Clarmont Benson, as it was then, and I, s- I remember s- vividly saying to the recruitment consultant, who are they, what do they do? Yes. She said, oh, it's one of the UK's biggest investment banks. I said, oh, okay. So, <laughs> I s- And she said, oh, I've got one job here at six months and I've got another one that's three weeks, which one do you want to do? Which was the investment bank, and I said, "Well, I've only just arrived, so why don't I'll, I'll take the three-week role?" Because <laughs> um, I didn't really want to commit to the six-month role. And uh, after three weeks, I was turning up every Monday, and no one asked me to leave. So, <laughs> long long story short, is I ended up they offered me a permanent role, and I ended up staying with uh, with Climb Woods for five years, five which years. was a fantastic experience. Uh, unlike, you know, some of my peers would do six months here and six months there, I actually stayed with the one organisation for that time. So if
1: you look at that particular experience, along with your EY experience, you're then starting to set yourself up with a pretty strong foundation mm. in the merchant banking and yes. the audit space. So London was a fantastic experience. Would you look back and say, well, that, that was just a must do in my career? You really took a lot out of it?
0: I absolutely. Made such a difference. And the exposure that I had to... I mean, we didn't have a lot of big investment banks in Perth, let's face it. And so the exposure that I had to the investment banking world, it was a global business, to treasury um, and you know—and it was actually at the beginning, dare I say, I'm really showing my age now, of the derivatives market and right. got quite involved with some of the team who were really, I think, paving the way for derivatives, how they were going to be traded and how they were going to be accounted for. So it was a really fascinating time. And, you know, we were young, Oh, I was young, people were well paid and I've sometimes told this story, I think it was the late 80s and of course there'd been the 87 crash and it was bonus time and I'd never had a bonus in my life. I mean, you know, my bonus was going to work and getting paid and the team said to me, look, when you go into the meeting, make sure you look really disappointed because it's going to be a bad year. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm d- I think I'm 24 years old or something. <laughs> yeah. So... I walk into the meeting and they said, tell them you're really disappointed. I said, okay. So I I walk into the meeting and they said, oh, look, it's been a really tough year. This is the the management. And they said, your bonus this year will only be £10,000. I'm like, are you kidding? (laughs) I I might want to go high five. You know, that's fantastic. But of course, you know, you had to sort of do the, well, that's a bit disappointing. but, But, you know, just it was just a different experience. It was a different interesting time in terms of... The UK economy, global economy post the eighty seven crash, but fascinating. And when I did come back to Perth, and eventually there was that pull to come back to, yes. to Perth, I, I then stayed in the banking area, and, and during a time when uh, Bank West was going through the sale to Bank of Scotland and the listing on the ASX, so that was just, and with my experience, I think that was one of the reasons where why I ended up uh, in the role that I did
1: in with Bank West. So that was the next stage. So. You know, you came back and you were with Senior Manager of Investor Relations with Bankwest. Yeah. Um, mm. And that was part of the float that occurred.
0: Yes, yeah, So I joined around about the time when the government were making a decision with the old r and that yes. then got corporatized and uh, Bankwest. And the decision was, did they list it as a standalone entity or did they sell it as a trade sale? And they sort of took a... A bit of a hybrid approach where they sold it to the Bank of Scotland in a trade sale, but there was a requirement that they listed it on the ASX and they retained fifty-one percent, and then were creep provisions after that. So, it was so Bank of Scotland were the parent entity, but yes. they, it was separately listed on the Australian Stock Exchange.
1: What an experience!
0: It was a really interesting time, yeah, and. There was a lot of work at the bank and with my experience because of working in the financial sector in the UK and reporting requirements to Bank of England and all those other issues, it was just uh, great timing in the context of uh, having returned from the UK.
1: Yeah, sure. So if we just move slightly to the left field, you're moving along well with your career and at that point, I know a very influential person in your life pops onto the scene. We're around 1995 and your husband, Kevin, arrives. And Kev, and how yep. did you meet, Kev?
0: Well, Kevin was the uh, the chief information officer at Bank West, so we met at work. In what people probably think is a bit of a cliche, but we we did meet it at work.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you've been married for what's it, twenty four years? Twenty four uh, years,
0: yes, yep, twenty four of Kev. Kevin's happiest years. <laughs>
1: Tell us a little bit about that in terms of how that's unfolded with regards to your career, then, because Kev had his own career and yes.
0: Yeah, it's always a bit challenging when you've both got demanding careers. Kevin you know, I've got three fantastic stepchildren from Kevin's previous relationship and so we were juggling kids and school and careers. We both had to travel with our work and then and later I'm sure we'll talk about Hatesbury. But um yeah. you know Kevin came home one day and said, Well now I've got the opportunity to work in the UK in a very senior role so there I was thinking well I've done my five years in the UK I've sort of ticked that box and uh, then the the choice came up and it was you know a choice but it was a great opportunity for his career so we we made that decision to return to the UK. So
1: but that you mentioned Hatesbury that was sort of happened around that time wasn't it when you yes so you joined from Bank West, you went to Hatesbury I did and what an opportunity that would have been.
0: It was, and and, I mean, a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with Hatesbury, but for those that maybe are less so, it was at the time was certainly, I think, Australia's largest private company. It was a conglomerate of a number of different assets, from construction through to live cattle, wineries, theatres in London, the biggest theatre owner in the West End of London. So a very large, important company, privately owned by the Holmes Court family, I joined a number of years after Robert Holmes Court had sadly, sadly passed away, but the business was still growing and it was, it was a really interesting time to be to be involved in such an iconic West Australian company.
1: So you would have had a lot of interesting experiences. As you say, it's diverse across a range of sectors. You were there for eight years. Mm. It's a long period of time.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, and I started in general manager of finance and then I actually was appointed CEO In 2000, so I was still in my 30s. We'd just sold John Holland to to the Leighton Group and Janet asked me to be CEO, which was a fantastic role and I I loved it and that, that was one of the challenges of the decision to go back to the UK when Kevin had his opportunity and... I distinctly remember that discussion with Janet. But after we moved to the UK, I actually still stayed on the board right. of Hatesbury and we had a earn-out period with Leighton for John Holland, so I stayed on the board of John Holland as well.
1: Okay. So you went to London. How did that unfold with your your career in terms of what was the next step? Because now we're at a stage where you're, you really are, you're immersed in it, right? Mm. And now you've, you've landed back in London. You clearly know your way around. What was your sort of idea there in terms of next steps? Because I can imagine Kevin was uh, pretty happy in terms of where he was going. What was your next role?
0: Yeah, Kevin's role was busy and he had to travel to Europe and, and the US and we had the two boys with us and we were, were settling them into school. So for the first 12 months, I actually worked full-time for Hatesbury and so I'd be on calls every uh Every every day, and I guess this is before virtual in the t- in the way yeah. that we know it now. Yeah. Um, but I also travelled to Perth every four to six weeks, so I was still very immersed in Hatesbury for that first twelve months. But then after that, and by mutual agreement, it was more of a traditional non-executive director. So I was thinking, well, what do I do do now? And uh, an opportunity came mm-hmm. up to join. A company which was about as different to any other business I'd, I'd worked for, which was in the media and entertainment space. But it was quite different to the experience I would had at Hatesbury, which was a private family company that actually we'd been selling some assets to try and, I guess, refocus the business on its core, being largely agribusiness. So we sold the theatres in Londo- London to Andrew Lloyd Webber and the really useful group and we did a number of deals. So that was more about the selling. And then I joined a media company that was listed, full London listing, and was very acquisitive. So we were buying businesses, including quite a large business that we bought in the US. So that gave me exposure to a different industry and to different markets, including the US, and more on the buying side as opposed to the selling side.
1: When you talk about the buying side, so you're referring to entertainment rights, Mm. PLC which for the listener is a British multinational, well, it was at the time, a British multinational mass media and entertainment conglomerate that specialised in TV shows, cartoons, children's media, film and distribution. You're acquiring films and distributing them or are you... The, are key,
0: you- the key to it is, is in the name Entertainment Rights. It's actually about rights ownership. Right. So we actually owned, and there'll be some listeners who are familiar with these characters, Postman Pat, Basil Brush a number of really... The great Basil Brush. The great Basil Brush. He used to come into my office demanding jelly beans. So we owned the rights. And once you own the rights, so it's all about intellectual property. Once you actually own the rights, then how you monetize that, whether that's through television or merchandise or books, clothing, apparel. So that was a big part of the business. We did actually also distribute a lot of the Mattel, Barbie movies. So that at the time which is when videos still existed before streaming. Huge. Um, it was huge. Uh, and then the business that we bought in the US owned a lot of other classic characters, like the Lone Ranger and a number of other characters. So it was actually about owning those rights. And what I learned through that time, obviously a lot about the media and entertainment sector, but the importance of intellectual property and how you protect intellectual property. And at the time, digital rights were just emerging. Yes. So that was quite a new area. And people were really starting to understand the importance of not giving away rights that later might have other ways of being monetized. And it was a fascinating time, really interesting, really interesting business and a growing business. It ended up in the hands of private equity, so that company no longer no longer exists. But as I said, we were buying we were, I mean I, the first part of my role there, we had to do due diligence on the Muppets. So there I was in was in Los Angeles in Jim Henson's old studio doing due diligence on the Muppets. And interestingly enough, we didn't end up buying it, even though at one point we were the front runner because there was an issue with Kermit's IP ownership.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> of all the things that came about it. If you don't have with. Kermit,
0: if you don't have Kermit, then you wouldn't buy the company.
1: What about those two guys that, that sit in the top? That yeah, the, uh, the two, the yeah, time?
0: yeah, yeah. I think those guys were actually you, you could have definitely bought them. bought them. could have bought them. <laughs> Even Miss Piggy was okay, but without Kermit, it wow. wasn't worth a hundred million US. Put See it that way. the
1: things you learn. The things you learn. This the whole issue around rights mm. is absolute importance now. Yes, you're, you're seeing it. I mean, the the search for rights for content through the pay TV streaming companies. You know, you're seeing it now. Do you, do you feel like it's sort of just evolved further and it's just a natural progression?
0: Well, I think it's become a really important part of media more broadly. But it's probably, I mean, I'm not as close to it as I was then, but it's that rights ownership and the f- this fact there's so much content now, there's probably, it's a little bit more diluted yes. than, for example, owning the rights to, you know, I think Disney make a billion dollars a year from Winnie the Pooh. And there's been a long-running battle with the heirs of A.A. Milne over the rights ownership uh, right. to Winnie the Pooh. So there's aspects of it that have have huge amounts of value. I think in a more commoditized world of streaming, probably less about merchandising rights and other rights. But in that, particularly in that kids, and that was speci- specifically why we focused on kids, because that's where there's a lot of a lot of value. You think of Bluey, right? Bluey's such a huge program. and I'm sure the yes. rights to that are very well protected. And, but intellectual property goes obviously way beyond just media. If I look at some of the work we've been doing at Fortescue with developing new technologies, um, key to that is actually making sure we've got the intellectual property that supports those new technologies is well protected. Patents. Yes, patents, trademarks, other ways of protecting intellectual property.
1: Sure. Well, for the listener, you can see that as we go, Elizabeth's skill set is growing, and it's becoming more and more diversified. So we've just covered off on on rights for mass media and entertainment. We've gone through diverse sectors of a private company. Yeah, you know, we've talked about audit. Well, the next step for Elizabeth was in travel, mm. and you're you're still in London when Hello World started, or did you came you come back for that?
0: No, so
1: which I know is a, a, is formerly Jet Set, yes. travel world and. Might be worth just explaining that this because it's another step in where we're going to get to with Fortescue.
0: Well, it's an even it's probably even it's slightly broader than just the travel piece. So it was two thousand and eight. Kevin and I were still in London. We'd been there for seven years, and we we had a fantastic time. We had a great lifestyle there, and the boys were getting older. And I think James is at university. So I got a call completely out of the blue about a role in Sydney with private equity and private equity, CVC, one of the big UK private equity groups uh, who had an office in Sydney, they had just bought MFS or the Stellar Group from MFS. So Stellar Group was part of, which was a Queensland company. Um, That's a whole story in its own right, but they had bought the Stellar Group and it had been a pretty quick, so this was 2008, the GFC hadn't quite happened yet. There were lots of deals still being done. It had been a relatively quick transaction Probably, with the benefit of hindsight, not as much due diligence on the business. But CBC had acquired it. They were looking for a global CFO because um, the Stella Group had assets in the UK, South Africa, New Zealand, the US, Australia, across travel and hospitality. Right. And a long story short, uh, I came over for an interview. The role was offered to me. Kevin was supportive of moving back to Australia, although for a year we toed and froed because he was still engrossed in what he was doing. So we had a bit of a commute time. And uh, I joined CVC Private Equity uh, the, the, and the Stella Group as the global CFO, just about the time that the GFC had hit. And like a lot of private equity stories at that time, it was heavily leveraged. So a lot of debt.
1: How do you deal with the debt? As a general rule, you know, when you're going into this sort of situation, and the debt is large, the markets are, are going against you, equity capital is not easy to come by, interest rates potentially rising or decreasing, whichever way you want to look at it.
0: It's all about cash and, yeah. and cash flow. And fortunately, the hospitality side of the business, it's which, which was the mantra group that we ended up listing separately, Yes. very strong cash flows, albeit the GFC had an impact on obviously consumers and, Appetite. Yeah, and you know buying behaviours. Travel was the same. Travel went through a challenging time. But the businesses themselves are actually good businesses. It was just that the debt through the private equity transaction, and at the time UBS had intended to syndicate the debt, the syndication markets closed, so they were left holding the debt. So we ended up working literally, I think, seven days a week, nearly 24 hours a day, to restructure. Uh, There was a debt for equity swap with UBS, and we did a comprehensive restructure of the whole group. Out of which came the travel piece that I ended up as CFO and then CEO, but I was also on the board of Mantra. So I was sort of across the various private equity interests really as a, I guess, a CVC, I guess, aligned.
1: Appointee. Yes. When you look at Mantra, for example, and and the listeners would be familiar with Mantra, they're all over Australia. When you acquired Mantra, was the rollout already in place and the hotel chain? In well, essence?
0: so yes, it was. So when CBC bought um, the Stellar Group from MFS, uh, Mantra already existed and actually had a good, mani- really strong management team. The brand existed. I mean, since the IPO, which was two thousand and sixteen, from memory, it's since been acquired by Accor, so it's now yes. part of the Accor Group. But at the time, no, the, the brand there was Mantra, there was Peppers, uh, and there might have been a couple of other brands in there. Break Free. So there were a few brands, but it was, yeah, a, a sizable business and it was an operating business, which was a good thing. And that's why the various businesses themselves are actually strong businesses. And the job that we had working in that sort of group role was to restructure the individual businesses so that they could actually survive and thrive. And we sold the South African hotel business. We ended up selling the UK business as well. So we... Comprehensively restructured, disposed of some areas that were, I guess, non-core, mm. and managed to, I guess, separate out the hospitality and the travel businesses. So it was a really interesting. And look, and travel is it's a fascinating industry. It is you're talking you know, it's large volume. So the turnover of a travel type business will be in the billions, but the margins are skinny. really skinny. Yeah. So we were the largest distributor of Qantas product in Australia. So we would sell about a billion dollars a year of Qantas product. And so every year you have a negotiation with each airline about how the company gets remunerated from, from which the travel agents are remunerated. So it's, it's a large and complex industry.
1: How did that unfold as, as online became more and more relevant and airlines were going direct?
0: Well, that's what's happened over time. And then yeah. you couple that with COVID and that had a real impact on the travel agency industry. It's good to see... You know, some of my my contacts that I still have in the industry that there's the the ones that had a strong business to start with are actually starting to reemerge and actually are really really busy. It's one of the challenges how travel agents are remunerated because the agencies uh, the airlines are going far more online and they the commissions that they pay get smaller. So it's almost like it should be almost a fee for time and service as opposed to relying on commission structures. But there is a huge service and value add that travel agents can make to people's Itineraries. Um, travels and itineraries. And there's nothing worse than having booked online and being overseas and suddenly your flight's cancelled. There is nobody you can call. So it's a, it's, a really, it's a true service industry with people who are really passionate about what they do. Yes. And yeah, the strong have, have survived pretty well.
1: It's a really interesting point you make around travel and the impact of COVID and things like that. When you were on the uh, – you are a Commissioner for Tourism WA. What period were you there –
0: I was there when I joined Fortescue as an executive. I stepped off the commission, so it was probably about three years, two thousand and
1: thirteen or fourteen to seventeen. Okay, yeah. So you were at Hello World for that
0: yes. during that period of time. Yes. So you had
1: really good, deep insight into what was going on on the ground in terms of travel.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think I mean I was live still I was living in Sydney at the time, but obviously had you know, a strong West Australian and East Coast perspective. And I thought it was it always a good thing when you're in Western Australia to get some of those perspectives from the East Coast and being part of the industry and the perspectives of the agency communities. So it, it was an interesting time, an interesting role. It's a really important organisation here in Western Australia and you know it's good to see that tourism is, is strengthening post-COVID. What do
1: you see, Elizabeth, as, and this is a little bit of a side note, but what do you see as important for WA to strengthen that tourism element The direct flight into Bustleton is clearly going to help. Direct flights into Rome, London. Mm. But what else can we do?
0: Well, I think we have to invest. And with organisations like Tourism WA, you have to invest in marketing because consumers have – travellers have so many choices. And the marketing spend of some of the state bodies like New South Wales and Victoria far exceeds Western Australia. So – there is a real push and a lot of this money is spent overseas so we may not necessarily see it here domestically but there's a real push to get travellers to come to those states. West Australia's got so much to offer. We're, we're a very vast country and we, we all know that. I think you know, if I had my my way, we'd probably have a, a couple of additional international entry points. So if you think of Queensland, yes. you can fly internationally from Brisbane, Coolangatta, Cairns, we don't have the same flexibility. So for someone in Asia who's only got four or five days of holiday, you know, to fly to Perth, to then fly to the Kimberley, is, is a big commitment. We have such fantastic natural assets, both natural and, you know, we think about Optus Stadium. And we mentioned earlier about the Rugby World Cup in 2027. The visitation that's going to bring if we get the, some of the really big games here is huge. We've got the best stadium in the world and capitalising on that from a tourism perspective because when people come to visit or to watch a game of sport or, or attend a concert, they'll stay and they'll spend money and they'll travel around the state because it becomes one of those things that if you've come all this way, you want to be a- actually able to do a bit more. And so, participate in what has so So we've got the opportunity. I think, I think marketing the state and investing in marketing Western Australia, as always, and I'm sure many would agree, that the more we can do, the better.
1: It's really maintaining and increasing our exposure. Mm. Yeah, Exmouth Airport sounds like a good idea.
0: <laughs> is there a vested interest there, too? <laughs> a
1: little bit, little bit. So that brings us to a really interesting point in time in your career because you're CEO with Hello World and you're on the board of Fortescue. And then you decide after a period of time, which is about seven years, decide it's time for a change and you're looking for opportunity outside of Hello World in the essence. Mm. How did it unfold with Fortescue? So how did the opportunity with Fortescue come along in terms of joining as a non-exec? And then this is the start of a really fascinating piece of time that I'd just love to get some insights Mm. into.
0: Yes, so in 2013, the Fortescue board was going through, I guess, a period of renewal. And all credit to our chairman and founder, Andrew Forrest, who actually recognised this growing trend towards needing more diversity on boards. I think in 2013, if you looked around corporate Australia, there weren't that many women on boards. There's been a big push since then. But Andrew deliberately had said to the search consultants, give me a list of of women. And the search consultants that he was using at the time was a local West Australian firm, Gerard Daniels, Lloyd Smith, who many people would probably be familiar with. And, you know, this is... (laughs) I often say to people, when you have a job, how you get the job's important. What you do when you're there is important. How you leave a role is just as important because Lloyd had appointed me into a role a number of years earlier, which when I left, I had contacted him and I had a discussion with him. And whilst I was working in the UK, you know, Lloyd had visited the UK and we'd stayed in contact. So... Yes, early 2013 or maybe it was late 2012. I remember distinctly driving down Spit Road in Sydney on my way home and there's a call from Lloyd and he said, look, I'm doing a search for directors for Fortescue. Would you be interested? And I'd followed Fortescue, you know, a fantastic West Australian company. And I was at that point of time really thinking about the next stage of my career, which at the time I thought was going to be a non-executive director with a portfolio. And so I then met Andrew. So it was quite timely. It was quite timely. I then met with Andrew. Andrew, you know, he likes to understand the individual and he he met with Kevin as well. He likes to understand that alignment to the values of the organisation. So long story short, and then I met with a number of other directors and I joined the board in 2013 as the first female non-executive director and followed not that long thereafter by Sharon Warburton as the second female director. And now, we, you know, we're a majority female board. That's a testament, as I said, to that sort of commitment to diversity, which has been a hallmark of Fortescue and Fortescue's success. So I, um, I joined the board and, and then I did make that decision to leave my CEO role with Hello World and pursue a non-executive Director, career, and uh, I joined the board of Nine Entertainment, Next yes, DC, yes. a number of other boards, yeah. and
1: that was all around that period of time.
0: Yeah, and I was, I was, yes, it was all around that period of time, and and I was, I was enjoying that, and it was a busy portfolio, and I really, but I loved you know, Fortescue. I guess was in some respects my my first love because of that strong culture, the values, the people. Nev Power was the CEO at the time. Andrew was obviously the chairman. And then in, must have been 2016, late 16, I remember Nev calling me and saying, well, Stephen Pearce, the CFO, has resigned. Would you help me find a new CFO? As in be part of a subcommittee. I said, absolutely no problems. Long story short, eventually the role was offered to me and that was a pivotal decision as well about, you know, whether to go back into an executive role because I was enjoying the non-executive portfolio and I hadn't been thinking about another executive role. But after you know a bit of – and we were still living in Sydney, so this was you know, about a commitment to move back to Perth. And, uh, and we talked about it and, and made the decision that, that I would accept that offer, which I'm so glad I did. But the reason I did it is because of the people, the values and the culture of the organisation. And if, as I said, I wasn't looking for another executive role, but that very strong alignment with my own personal values yes. – it was an opportunity that was too good to pass up.
1: You mentioned values. I just wouldn't mind expanding a little bit on that because you've mentioned it. My research around the Fortescue Way, the values are inherent. They come through yes, loud and clear. It's an important part of the fabric of the organisation and it's those words like humility, integrity, safety, family. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and how that resonated with you when you started?
0: Yeah, I I mean, the values are something that some organisations talk about values. I can't think of an organisation that doesn't say that they have a vision statement or values. But sometimes, and it's not always the case, but it can be a poster on on the wall next to the one that says, wash your hands frequently. Yeah. You know, at Fortescue, the commitment to values was weekly town hall meetings, engagement with people. We would go to the Pilbara as a board. I was a non-exec at the time. And it was genuine. This wasn't like, well, here's a separate area for the board. You know, they won't mingle with the team up in the Pilbara. But it wasn't like that at all. It was, you know, everybody is part of the Fortescue family. There is no hierarchy. There is no bureaucracy. There's appropriate governance. There's all the things you would expect, but there's no offices. It's all open plan. The CEO sits right in the middle of the, the office and people can walk up at any time. So that creates those values. If you communicate in an authentic way with people, they feel as though they're part of, of a team yes. or a family. And acting with integrity really means doing what you say you're going to do. And we've always operated on that basis. Safety, first and foremost, and the focus on safety, it's there every single day, every single minute of the day. But there are other values as well, courage and determination. Because when Fortescue started... There were a lot of sceptics who said that, Andrew and the team, I wasn't involved back in 2008, but who said, well, they're not going to be able to achieve this. They won't get a railway built, the port infrastructure. They won't get the mining in time to generate cash flow given the debt that had been taken on to fund that construction. So there was plenty of sceptics. But the reality is that with courage and determination and a huge amount of hard work and initiative, empowering others, you know, they achieved what others thought was impossible. So without those values, that really underpinned the very early stages. And the interesting thing with values, because at that time it was, you had to do those things because that was about survival. Now we're a very large organisation generating significant returns, not only for our shareholders, but for the West Australian and the Australian economy. But those values are still just as relevant today. All of those values. And And as
1: you build a... the workforce is some, well, under your guidance, it was some 17,000. So those values were something that people could reflect on and refer to and align with on an everyday basis. Yes. And, and, and is that part of that internal culture that you are able to generate?
0: And that, and that is, it is, and it's about communicating regularly and engaging with people regularly. You actually have to be disciplined at it. So the weekly town hall meetings, for example, where... People either gather around in Perth or it's streamed to the sites in the Pilbara. You know, you need to communicate with people. And, you know, if you've said it once, say it again and say it again. Don't Never take for granted that people are aligned necessarily. You actually have to have those conversations yes. and you have to be authentic in what you do and what you say. And so it's a very big part that our internal communications to that large workforce to me, are just as important as our external communications.
1: Yes. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's very, very interesting. So you were appointed CEO in February 2018, and you were the very few women CEOs appointed at the time. How did that feel? I mean, when we look back, Elizabeth, and I put it into context of where you came from in terms of your upbringing, your mum and dad and the way they influenced you, the encouragement to continue to study, your love of music, then across this diverse range of career platforms that have enabled you to get to this point, you didn't know if you wanted to go back into an executive role and now here you are, being appointed CEO of the third force in Australian iron ore, Western Australian iron ore, Australian iron ore. So how did it feel?
0: Uh, I'd be lying if I said that you don't have moments where it feels incredibly daunting. And I think I often say this to, particularly to women, we are the first to doubt ourselves, to say, oh, can I, I mean, you know, dare I say it, a bloke might say, yeah, no problems, I can do that. But I think women have this natural instinct to say, oh, I don't know, not sure. And you get the butterflies in the stomach and think, can you do this? So, of course, you have, you have those moments, and I've had them on various parts of my career and moving around the world, and, but that's the time where you have to dig deep. And you dig deep and you back yourself and you say, of course, I can do this. You know, I've been asked to step up and do this and, and I, I can do it. And you have to trust your own instincts, your own experience. You have to be authentic to who you are, not to the previous CEO. I mean, I'm never going to be like Nev. You know, we're all different. I was only the third CEO of Fortescue. But you do have to, you know, you do have to dig deep and say, yes, I can do this and have that belief that you are able to step up into the role that, you know, is a very – was a high-profile – or it is a high-profile role, but in the context of being one of the few female CEOs in the ASX, that's a bit that's still frustrating because, you know, when I was appointed, that's the key of the headlines is, you know, a woman being appointed to run, you know, an ASX top 10 or 20 company Um, and probably at the time there were more CEOs on the ASX with the name Andrew, Peter or John than there were women. And that is still the case. And it could take another 40 or 50 years before we see parity at an executive level. And I think there's been a lot of progress made with boards mm. getting better gender balance. But when you look at the C suite, CEOs and others in ASX and other even private companies, we haven't made the same progress. And so we're still at that same position where women CEOs and someone being appointed the CEO, a woman being appointed the CEO of of a of a large company is is the genesis of the story as opposed to the individual
1: and the skill set that you bring with you that to me at the time you know the appointment your appointment seems to just flow on with your your appointment to the board CFO and then CEO tell us a little bit about Andrew and the character that makes him to make these decisions and, and how he sees it. Because you said he was an early adopter of, mm. for example, a diversified board, Gender yep. Balance. Where did he fit into this in terms of, I'm sure he said to you, right, you've got this.
0: Absolutely. no, You've got the, this the and support, I'm behind you. Yeah, the support of Andrew has been fundamental to to even me taking on the role. Yeah, And I think one of the benefits of the fact that I had been on the board and then as CFO, clearly I was a pretty well-known entity by then. And I think we both recognise that strong alignment with the culture and the values of the organisation. And I'd been involved already for five years, so I had a good sense of, of the business. And Andrew has been incredibly supportive of my journey throughout my time at Fortescue. And I think there's, you know, both of us come from, I guess, the bush, you know, there were some similarities in... A in, connection. Yeah, and a, and a connection there. And, you know, Andrew's not only been committed to diversity in the gender sense, but I think in providing opportunity to everybody. And I think about our vocational training and employment centres where we take kids from the Kimberleys and the Pilbara and after a six-week training course, they're given a guaranteed job in the mining industry with Fortescue. And I've met so many people whose lives have been changed by just that opportunity that someone saw in them that if you gave them the six-week training and sometimes it can be for really practical things like actually getting a driver's licence and the practical skills you need to be able to work on a mine site, that's been life-changing to so many people. And likewise for me, my journey and, and that support that I've had is, has uh, has been life-changing.
1: Wow. So for the listener, here you are in this role and we all go to work, but your day would involve getting up in the morning, seeing a fluctuating iron ore price, (laughs) workplace health and safety, the management of some 17,000 people, maintaining your vital customer network, building infrastructure, the automation of trains, trucks, ships, infrastructure around all that. All this as an example, and then leading in the Fortescue way, highlights that you had a very demanding role. So how do you approach that? Mentally, when you get up, you go, right, well, today, this is what I'm concentrating on, or you clearly would have to rely on a pretty amazing team.
0: Oh, absolutely. And any person who implies that they've been able to achieve all of this by themselves is talking nonsense, because it takes a team. Yeah. And you have to have... You know, it's, and it's a team throughout the organisation. This is not, I mean, we often, you know, we used to, oh, I used to say it's a it's a star team. It's not a team of stars. It's the team that makes it happen. But it is a diverse, I mean, the thing about mining, and some people may not know, but it's 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Yes. You don't stop for Christmas Day or Good Friday or any other holiday. So it's it's very demanding. There are people working, as I said, you know, 24 hours a day, When it comes to health and safety, to me, when people would say to me, you know, what keeps you awake at night, the only thing that kept me awake at night is worrying that somebody might be injured or even worse at work. And so, you know, safety is the priority. The rest of it, you just have to get across lots of different things and you have to be prepared during a day to be able to focus on, you know, a customer meeting or it could be dealing with something to do with autonomy dealing with the markets and then there's the investor relations piece. So the roadshows, it's, it is a demanding, it's a very demanding role and that's why you do need fantastic people around you. Yes.
1: Yes. Technology played a bigger part as you went through your time. Tell us a little bit about technology in terms of, you know, the automation side, but where is it going from here? It is hard to believe that we're at a stage where you've got a desk of computers, people driving these trucks that are automated. So well, how's it going from there?
0: Well, it's it's interesting. You know, I often say that West Australians don't appreciate what we have here. We are the most innovative in the world in mining. People talk about Houston as being the centre for oil and gas innovation. Well Perth is absolutely the centre for innovation for the mining industry, and there is no other centre like it and autonomy has it's improved safety. We were the first to adopt. Autonomous haulage—that's basically trucks and big trucks yes. without drivers—and Yes. And we now are autonomous across our mining operations. So these trucks are operating twenty-four hours a day. You get better productivity and efficiency because you don't have to stop stop for lunch, lunch breaks, and other breaks, and you get better safety outcomes because you know it's it's fully autonomous, and so there's no kind of human error. But the great part about autonomy that we found is. You know, and and going fully autonomous for haulage meant that did impact on a large number of jobs because we had people driving these trucks. Yes, twenty four hours a day, not working shifts, not, not actually enough. driving yep. twenty four hours. Yes, so we had to take the workforce on a journey with us, and I think that's the thing about innovation and technology. It's about people at the end of the day. So we didn't make anybody redundant as a result of taking drivers out of the trucks. What we did is we retrained and we reskilled people and we provided them with those opportunities. We held career nights at all of our sites when people were actually on shift and they could see the other opportunities. And you're right, now we have a whole team here in Perth who are operating mining equipment thousands of kilometres away from here in Perth. That'll be shiploaders, trains, trucks – And the future is that I think autonomy will continue to play a significant part, as well as artificial intelligence. We're going to see haulage trucks that are autonomous, as in sort of moving material rather than just um, over longer distances. And, of course, we'll talk a bit later about the energy transition, which is the the next phase of technological development. But there is no doubt that whether it's autonomous drills, the work we're doing in that area, and that improves the safety performance from drill and blast, which is incredibly important. So there's more and more opportunity for technology to play a significant part. And there is, you know, people think of mining about, not quite shovels, but you no. know, excavators and, and dirt. And the reality is it is far more about high tech than it is about high vis. It's a bit of both, but yes. the high tech piece of it and the centre of excellence we have here in Western Australia, I guess I, I think probably we should do more as a state to really harness that innovation and to showcase it globally because we have world leaders here in uh, technology, particularly around mining and autonomy.
1: And it's being picked up, I'm sure, through the other mining countries such as the states that are looking at our technology and in embracing
0: it? Well, the, the, the next... Mission to Mars, uh, NASA are looking at some of the remote technology that we're using for uh, for that next mission. Yes, so, yes. So you know, it just goes to show that we are Speaks absolutely volumes. moving moving the needle.
1: Yeah, yeah. You touched on it, but Fortescue is diversifying into a renewable energy and a resource company. Now, you've seen through that period of time as CEO and you decided, well, it's time for a transition to occur, would probably be the best mm. way to describe it. How did you think about that in light of green? So uh, for the listeners, give us a bit of perspective from your side and what you were seeing because we would love to know what you were seeing that demonstrated your, I suppose, approach to a transition when you are in this role.
0: Yeah, well, look, I think if, if I take a little bit of a step back, there is no doubt that climate change is real and that the world is currently not on track, to meet the targets that were set under the Paris Agreement, which is for uh, global warming of no more than one and a half degrees. In fact, we're going to exceed that if we stay on the current path. So and I guess it's part of the entrepreneurial vision of uh, a chairman like Andrew. He sort of looks a decade out uh, and has realised what the world is going to look like in a decade's time, and there will be an accelerated transition to green energy. There has to be. Right. The planet is cooking. It is warming and we have to actually do more. And that realization I think is already occurring. We're we're seeing obviously challenges around the security of supply of energy. If you look at the Ukraine conflict and the impact that's had in Europe on the supply of gas and other forms of energy to countries like Germany who have relied on uh, been able to access energy yes. from places like Russia. You've seen the cost of oil uh, skyrocket. And on the East Coast here in Australia, people are facing you know, 20% increases in energy bills. So we're already seeing the impact of that volatility on energy. And you know, Fortescue has really led the way in our commitment to eliminating emissions from our mining operations. It's a big commitment. So we made a decision as a management team and this wasn't something that was dictated to us. This was a decision we made as a management team to be bold and to say that we will look to eliminate emissions from mining by 2030. Yes. And to do that, we actually have to eliminate the use of diesel and gas and any other fossil fuel in our mining operations pretty quickly. We're already in 2023. So there's a big energy transition happening. It's an exciting time. There's going to be some decision points, some challenges along the way. I kind of saw that opportunity as, you know, we've we've set that platform uh, I had that discussion uh, with with the chairman about well, you know, maybe it's time for you know, for me to transition uh, into a, a different role, and uh, and we look to a, you know, a a team that's going to approach it in in a different sense to the business that we've seen in the past. Yes,
1: yes, and that FFI part of the business mm. is now growing significantly.
0: It is. So Fortescue Future Industries is the business that's been established to really drive that green energy transition and across the whole value chain from the ownership of intellectual property, technology, manufacturing, energy generation and energy distribution. So really across that whole value chain. But it's also supporting Fortescue the iron ore business in the efforts to decarbonise because Fortescue iron ore needs the technology that FFI is developing in order for Fortescue to decarbonise and eliminate over 2 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent emissions every year. Which so, is a lot. Which is a lot. Yep. It's a lot. And you know, we're seeing globally now countries like the US have bought in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is an interesting name for an act that actually supports the energy transition, but the IRA. what well, That provides enormous subsidies to US um, producers to transition to green energy and produce green energy and green hydrogen and other forms of uh, green energy. So other countries are recognising the opportunity we have in front of us. You know, Fortescue has led the way here domestically and we're always hopeful that governments here will be more ambitious and will provide even greater support to their energy transition because it's a very big opportunity for Australia. We have enormous renewable energy resources, sun, wind, water – we have all of the makings for a significant green energy market and I often compare it to iron ore. And If you think about the value of iron ore and, and what that contributes to the West Australian economy and that export market that's developed over a number of decades, you look at LNG and the economic benefit we've had from that. Well, green energy will be that next major export market for Australia and certainly for Western Australia. Yes,
1: yes. Goodness me, it's just very exciting when you look at the opportunity Mm. set there. Elizabeth, you made the decision and I just couldn't help but look at the press conference. It looked like I got a little bit emotional there (laughs) when you had to step down. A lot of uh, good times and great experiences and and loyal friendships and obviously came to the fore.
0: Yeah, look, I think if you work anywhere where you give so much of your time and energy, if that doesn't matter to you and you know it doesn't have an impact on you then why are you doing it yeah quite frankly so when people sort of say well you know you can get emotional about things well that's because you care about it yeah absolutely um if you didn't care then you'd just say see you later and I'm out the door and of course that wasn't the case but i that was december 21 that we announced it but then i was in the in the role for another 8 months so you know i just it was for me back to business as usual <laughs> as we as we went through <laughs> that transition process so you look at say it's an amazing organization. i'm I'm privileged that I'm still involved. That's the way I think about it, is that i'm I'm very fortunate that I still have the opportunity to make a contribution, and it can be a bit unusual for a former CEO to go um, back onto the board as a non-executive. But I'd like to think we're on a journey, and certainly with energy transition, we're on a journey and that I can still make a contribution.
1: Well, you certainly made a contribution to your time at Fortescue in the roles that you had. I think since, just looking at it, from February 2018, the Fortescue share price rose significantly from around $5 to the high teens. You are now a non-exec. You've been appointed to the role of Global Green Hydrogen Ambassador. But I think what was interesting when you look at some of the commentary around when you stepped down, the AFR in July, Fortescue Metals Group Chief Elizabeth Gaines is going out with a bang. With just a month to go before she leaves the top job, Gaines has delivered another quarter of of record iron ore production, another annual production record and a third consecutive year of production above guidance. You talk about your chairman, Andrew Forrest, he gave you such a glowing tribute. Elizabeth is one of Australia's truly inspiring leaders. We are grateful that she has accepted the critical role of ensuring the world understands that green hydrogen, green ammonia, green energy and all of its products are combined. The only practical, implementable solution to global warming that can be delivered in a commercial, highly sustainable basis. Elizabeth's depth of character, leadership, global integrity and respect is appreciated by Fortescue's executives and fellow directors. Not surprising they wanted you back on the board.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Andrew's very generous. And of course, you know, listening to the, the, about the the records, I mean, again, that is the team. The, you know, the records that the business managed to continue to achieve is down to the efforts of everybody right across the organisation. There are people working in hot, dusty conditions doing 12-hour shifts in the Pilbara right now and they're the people that deserve the credit for those uh, operational performance.
1: Well, shout out to all those people. Quite a remarkable performance and quite a remarkable result over that period. I just want to now move on to some sort of general questions. um, It all relates back, but it's quite a talking point that the strength of the Australian iron ore sector has been keeping us going through what's been a pretty challenging time particularly when you look at the COVID period. I would love to just hear what do you think around the impact of that on the Western Australian economy, the Australian economy and its role in our country. And then overlay that with this perplexing China debate that's going on because they are incredibly important to us at the same time as is our iron ore sector. So how can you explain that to the listener?
0: Well, we're a trading nation, and that's the bottom line. Australia survives on trade, trade with other nations. Probably a little-known fact that people don't uh, quite realise is that the most valuable piece of infrastructure in Australia, by any measure, is the port of Port Hedland. The value of iron ore that is exported through the port of Port Hedland far exceeds the value of any other exports anywhere else in Australia. So that is our most valuable piece of infrastructure from an export sense. And billions of dollars have been contributed to the state economy in royalties by obviously ourselves, BHP and Rio and and others, and obviously to the federal economy through the payment of corporate taxes. And there's the employment of vast numbers of people. So the value of the iron ore sector, and I haven't exactly got the export numbers to hand, but the in terms of dollars, we've, we've s- set records every year for the last two or three years. It's no, no surprise that the Western Australian economy has fared much better than any other economy globally, and that's actually just Western Australia, because of the strength of the iron ore sector. And we all worked really hard, and I think as an industry... We demonstrated the best of our industry when we came together during COVID to make sure that we could continue to meet the requirements of the government around quarantining and border closures and the like. But we also managed to keep our production operating without any impact at all to production right across the industry. And we did that as an industry. So that really shored up the WA economy and the Australian economy. And most people sitting on the East Coast have very little appreciation of how much the mining sector more broadly, but particularly the iron ore sector, has contributed to the strength of the Australian economy. So it's, it's critically important that you know, we maintain those strong relationships and those strong trading relationships. You know, and China's been a very strong trading partner with Western Australia in particular. Yes. And I know the Premier is about to visit China uh, and before COVID he'd been there four times since he was appointed Premier and I think that demonstrates whilst there may be a slightly different approach from, from Canberra, I think the West Australian government has um, appreciated the strength of that trading relationship. And the reality is that the Pilbara produces over 60 or 70% of iron ore that's exported into into China. China relies on that supply of iron ore. We are pretty much iron ore central here yes. in the Pilbara. Yes. So that's very important. And in early 2020, January 25th, actually, just before Australia Day, there was a terrible tragedy in Brazil where a tailings dam collapsed with a significant loss of life. And that actually took 90 million tonnes of global supply of iron ore out of the market, and if you track back the iron ore price for those of your listeners who are interested in, in looking at it, you go back to January 2020, and you can see the iron ore price pretty much within four or five months got back to above 100 US dollars a ton, and that's largely a result of that supply disruption. And that supply has never been replaced. Right. So the market is is pretty balanced. There's strong demand, and supply is. It's well-structured, but there's not a lot of new supply coming into the market. There is, from Fortescue, we have our iron bridge magnetite project, which is just about to go into production, having gone through the construction period, and that'll add another 22 million tonnes of high-grade magnetite to the market. So we've got a market now where the iron ore price has been above $100 for three years. The domestic economy has been a beneficiary of that strong market, and we continue to see strong demand, and I think China has come out of their COVID lockdown and mandatory lockdowns and we're seeing very strong demand for iron ore. And more recently, I guess as a result of some of the announcements around the orca steel, President Xi has responded by saying we're going to build a wall of steel. Now, the only thing that's going to build the wall of steel is iron ore. Right. So I think what that indicates is that there will, despite some of the more challenging security type language, there will be strong ongoing demand for iron ore. So not only is China looking at its, its, its defence, it also has a commitment to continue to urbanise and to build better housing, better infrastructure, whether that's rail, roads, other airports, other forms of infrastructure, and all of that is steel intensive. And if you then add to that the energy transition and wind turbines and other pieces of equipment need steel. So I think the outlook for the iron ore sector uh, remains robust and you know we are a core supplier of iron ore and you've had some disruption from because Ukraine actually produced iron ore as well. So there's been some disruption, smaller volumes, but yes. some disruption with the Ukraine conflict.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that. How do you think, when you look at Australia, it can leverage itself better on the global stage? You've got a great understanding of international positioning. How do you think Australia as a whole can do, build on its strengths, make the most of our opportunities?
0: Well, I, I think I immediately go to the energy transition. This transition to renewable energy, demand for green hydrogen, green ammonia, other forms of renewable energy will grow significantly. We're already seeing demand from countries like Germany who have been impacted by the Ukraine conflict. So there's, the demand is there. We don't have to worry about demand, but there will be a race and it's a global race because whilst we have an amazing abundance of renewable energy resources in some wind and uh, and water, we're not the only country to have those natural attributes. So that's why countries like the United States are putting so much money into the energy transition that they could well accelerate and surpass the natural advantage that Australia has. Right. I mean, Australia's... We've got very strong trading relationships globally, and certainly in that sort of Asia Pacific area, we're fairly close to some of those markets that will demand renewable energy. So proximity is an opportunity for us. So really, we need to capitalise on that. And we've got a budget coming up shortly, a federal budget. Uh, I think many, uh, myself included, would be urging the federal government to look at those, in, to look at what's happening globally with the US incentives. The EU has has responded to the Inflation Reduction Act in the US by introducing their own legislation to support the energy transition. Yes, so they're putting real money into this, and for Australia to uh, capitalize on this opportunity, we we really need to take it, some pretty bold steps. Yeah, and we need to be able to put sort of money into this and funding into it, and incentivize because I think there still needs to be an element of in, of of incentive plus. There's the regulatory approval framework. So I guess trying to remove some of the red tape so that we can actually take advantage of a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And fast-track it. Fast-track it, absolutely. Yep. Yep.
1: Elizabeth, this this is something I picked up in terms of your career. There is a saying that your reach should always exceed your grasp. And you've been quoted through life as saying quite regularly, yes, more than saying no. I want to put that in the context of for aspiring women who would like to emulate your achievements and do, do it the way you've done it and be a part of it. What is the sort of advice that you can give them? You know, there's, there's a lot of aspiring, ambitious women around that, that would look at you and say, well, gosh, that is just amazing how you've been able to navigate and achieve the way you have. What would you say in terms of some tips? Some advice.
0: Well, the advice, we've probably touched on it already, is that sort of saying yes more often than you say no because like most humans, we're often confronted by change. So when you're doing something, you think, you know, life's pretty balanced and then an opportunity presents itself. It can be quite easy to say no at the outset or not even really consider that opportunity because that change can be confronting and I've certainly had that a couple of times in those, I guess, almost sliding door moments, whether it was, you know, going going to the, the one-way ticket to Istanbul or the, you know, Kevin's opportunity to to go to the UK or becoming the CFO of Fortescue. It could have been quite easy to say, no, I'm happy being on the board. We're happy in Sydney. So it's, and some of it has to be your own gut and your own instinct. But I think, to women in particular, and I said it earlier, it's trying to push away the self-doubt and you know where you say, well, "Can I really do this?" Yeah. and finding that inner strength somehow to to really back yourself. And as I said, we've all had it, and anyone who says they haven't, or particularly women, and that, that imposter syndrome. You know, why me? Why why have I got this, and why not somebody else? So I think if you can, um, if you can actually make sure that you really find that inner fortitude. You, th- you think about the consequences of your decisions. It doesn't mean you say yes to everything, but think about the consequences, um, but also be open to change. Yes. And, you know, having the support of, of Kevin, having the support of family is is critically important as well and thinking things through in that through that context and that lens of what does that mean overall. But as a result, I've had an amazing career so far We've lived all over the world, we've had you know, a fascinating time and, and that's largely come from a lot of hard work, by the way. There is no shortcut to hard work and um, that that is really, I think, been, has underpinned my whole career, is working really hard but also taking on those opportunities. When others might have said, no, that's too much change.
1: Yes. The harder you work, the luckier you get.
0: <laughs> Something like that.
1: <laughs> Gary Player, I think that's really good insights. So it's, you talk about the hard work and it's one, it's a question we often ask is trying to find that work-life balance. And it's a, it's a challenge that I think everyone has to deal with at some point point. and there's different ways of approaching it. There's no easy answer, but how have you found, how have you and Kevin found that working in demanding roles, both of you at different times and, you know, being able to find that balance
0: Well, I can't actually say that I or we are experts at that. Um, I think at times, you know, work has has largely dominated our lives. But, you know, we always tried to make sure we carve out time. You know, until recently we had a a place down south. So every second weekend we would aim to get down there. You know, we try to – it's those sort of short little breaks away, I think, that help to provide you with some balance. I think when it comes to the day to day of a working week, that was probably more challenging actually. And yes. know, trying to fit in exercise, for example, you know, getting up at four forty-five in the morning and doing that—it takes quite a lot of discipline. And I did it, but it's you know, that's that's always a bit challenging. But you do have to carve out some time for yourself. Yes. Um, and you know, the occasional bit of travel, uh, which we like doing, and one of the fortunate things. Now just having a little bit more time to be able to focus on some of those things as well and for me being outdoors, fresh air, beach, uh, nature, you know, that's that sort of for me is, is good for both my physical and mental health.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so to, it brings us to today and, you know, I know I'm very conscious of time and you've been very generous with that. Today you are still very busy as much as you sort of have probably dropped back a notch in terms of busyness but... I was just looking through. You're you're a non-exec director of Fortescue. You're the global green hydrogen ambassador for Fortescue. Non-executive director and deputy chair of Greatland Gold. Non-exec director of West Coast Football Club, which discussed earlier. You're a member of Chief Executive Women, the Curtin University Business and Law Advisory Council, the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute's board of directors. Mm. Fascinating. Yes. Absolutely. Amazing organisation. Yep.
0: Yep. It's a brilliant organisation they've established a relationship with UWA here in Perth. So last year they were looking for a Perth-based director and I was delighted that the chairman asked me to join the board. Congratulations. They do do amazing work. Yeah,
1: unbelievable. A member of the Rugby Australia's BID Advisory Committee, I I mentioned that earlier, but we were talking pre-going on air, but this advisory committee is quite phenomenal. I, Mm. I was going through the members, Sir Rod Eddington, who's chair, the 25th Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard, Sir Peter Cosgrove, Australian Olympic Committee President, John Coates, Member of the rugby, World Rugby Hall of Fame, John Eels, Australian rugby great, Gary Ella, Hamish McLennan, who's Chairman of Rugby Australia, and Australian Tourism, Olivia Worth. That must be a lot of fun
0: it was actually we now that we've won, won now the bid won the we bid, we've, we've, exactly. It's sort of the, the committee's our, our job is is done so uh, ma- maybe we might uh, get together again pre 2027 but we've we've won the bid and it's fantastic it's a great opportunity for australia to host a world cup and not only did we win the bid for the men's world cup in 27 it's also for the women's in 29 so that will it's you know and the visitation that's going to bring to western australia and australia Look, it was, as you said, amazing board and there's a lot of rugby royalty on that board. I, I When uh, Sir Rod Eddington called me about it and you sort of think, well, what what can I add? But I do think having a West Australian voice and certainly I was always the one to, you know, when they're talking about where games are going to be played and what marquee games are going to be played and, and advocating with the West Australian government as well that we need to support this bid and we actually need to try and get as much content as we can here in Western Australia so that we get those visitors from the UK and from all the countries around the world and that they come here to Western Australia, they see what a fantastic place uh, West Australia is and that they spend time and obviously money which contributes to the Western Australian economy. So it's it's going to be an exciting event when it happens. Oh,
1: well, congratulations to the committee on, on the getting awarded it. It's just fantastic. It's Yeah, it's great. And how have you found, I mean, you're not really dealing into the depths of rugby here. It's more about the, the bid for the cup, but being on the board of the Eagles and looking at rugby as well, have you seen any sort of synergies or?
0: Well, I think what, what you see is there's the sport element of it, which is so important. And yes. it's the professionalism and the discipline of the sport element. And But there's also, a it's the business side of a club. If I think about the West Coast Eagles, for example, that is, it's a club that's been in existence for, for a long time now, decades, and it's, An incredibly strong club, both financially, and then we've got the most members of any club in Australia. So you know that's the strength of those, both of those organisations, and the West Coast Eagles in particular. It's just a reminder that you know these are—it's the culture of the organisation, and so there are so many similarities to what I've actually done in a business sense. Yes, when you see these organisations, and you know if I can make a contribution and through uh, being on the board of uh, of the West Coast and, uh, you know, I'm ab- absolutely privileged to do so.
1: Fantastic. Well, Elizabeth, I really have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been a wonderful insight into your, not only your career but your life and the way you approach things and the people that have influenced you and I think the listeners have really just got an absolute treat about how you go about things and, and your approaches. So I wanted to just say, look, so on behalf of Euros Hartleys Finding the Front, I really want to thank you for your time and it's just great that you've been able to take the time out and join us and share with some of your insights. So, look, we do appreciate it and thank you.
0: Oh, thanks, Tim. Great to spend some time with you as Good well. on you.
1: Thanks again, Elizabeth. Thanks for listening to Euros Hartleys Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out EurosHartleys.com for more information. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.